0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series. Dr. Bill Takeshi is the Chief of Optometric Services for the Center for the Partially Sighted in Los Angeles, as well as Director of Low Vision Training here at Braille Institute. The Dr. Bill Telephone Series is an educational program focusing on pediatric eye conditions for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with young children with visual impairments. The information presented should not be considered a medical or educational consultation, but information that will help us better understand pediatric eye conditions. Tonight, our our topic is cortical visual impairment, and our very, very special guest is Dr. Christine Christine Roman-Lancey, and she is the director of the Pediatric View Program at Western Pennsylvania Hospital in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and serves as project leader of the CVI project at the American Printing House. She is also author of Cortical Visual Impairment, an Approach to Assessment and Intervention, an AFB publication. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me.
2: Thank you very, very much, Dr. Roman, for being here this evening. And we know that you're calling from Pittsburgh, so it's quite late there in the evening. But everybody here on the West Coast, we we really are so, so grateful. And uh, this evening, the reason I'm so excited about this discussion is that Cortical vision impairment is now the leading cause of vision impairment among children. And this has really become a major problem, not only because of the increased number of children with this type of vision impairment, but also with the fact that there are many, many parents who have been told that nothing could be done for this condition. And I know that from your publication, your expert research, You have actually found something that was very, very different, and I'd like to ask you questions about your research so the people in our audience can learn what types of things that they can do and that there is actually something that can be done for cortical vision impairment. First of all, Dr. Roman, can you just tell some of our people who may not be quite familiar with cortical vision impairment, what is it and what seems to be the major causes of CVI?
1: Okay, um, so cortical visual impairment is um, is a form of visual impairment that occurs because of injury or structural differences or conditions that affect the visual pathways and visual processing centers of the brain. So I think of uh, visual impairment as sort of falling into two broad categories. One category uh, includes all the disorders of the eye. Um, things that can go wrong or happen to the eye. The other is um, the category that includes things that affect the brain, the visual pathways and processing centers of the brain. So I wanted to step back one moment, though, and say that um, there is a difference between um, something called cerebral visual impairment and cortical visual impairment. And cerebral is the term that is um, used by some individuals to describe a visual difference um, because of something that happened to the brain. But um, in a paper that was written by a, a number of individuals sponsored by the American Printing House for the Blind, um, and those individuals included physicians and therapists and professors and educators, um, that, that there was a collective um, decision that we would use the term cortical visual impairment because we're really referring to a subset of, you know If you think of cerebral visual impairment as all things that can happen to the brain that cause visual differences, so if a child has a figure ground issue, if a child has dyslexia, if a child has prosopagnosia and can't recognize faces, those things might all come under the term of cerebral visual impairment. But if you think of a subset within that term, cerebral, there is a subset that is that uh, where children have these 10 characteristic behaviors um, and when those children when that is present in a child who has also had one of the causes of CBI and their eye exam cannot explain the way they use their vision functionally then that child is rendered visually impaired and <clears throat> excuse me has cortical visual impairment so <clears throat> we're really talking about cortical visual impairment as the phenomenon that sort of resides within the larger scope of things called visual processing disorders, but this particular one renders the child visually impaired, and in fact, most parents of children with CVI will reflect back on their child's early days and and think and be able to sort of describe how they thought their child might not see, might not see normally they had grave concerns about their child's vision, even though their eye exam didn't reflect those concerns. So the confusion begins right there. Um, the causes for CVI are really numerous, and with, this is really a, a course unto itself, just like anatomy and physiology of the human eye is a course unto itself. But but I will list some of the, the major causes. Um, so the things that can damage visual pathways that deliver those, you know, visual impulses, those messages that are to be processed in the occipital lobe or that damage the occipital lobe itself include things like white matter damage, um, once called periventricular leukomalacia, now more often just called white matter damage. Um, Asphyxia, a lack of oxygen, um, a significant lack of oxygen can cause CVI. Um, if a child has a perinatal stroke, that can cause CVI. If a child has um, is premature and has a um, intraventricular hemorrhage, which is the kind of bleed that a premature baby has, and they have a severe bleed, a grade three or grade four bleed, that can cause CVI. If they have structural damage due to sort of either um, um, things that have no explanation or Things that are associated with chromosome disorders that can cause TBI. If a child has hydrocephalus, that can cause TBI. If a child has um, has a trauma, if they've been in an accident, so their vision was developing normally, but they had a near drowning, or they had a near miss SIDS event, or they had a, they were in a car accident, or something um, you know really interfered with the development of their vision, that also can be called acquired CVI. So those are some of the causes. Essentially, um, I really believe that vision educators and and individuals who work with children um, with multiple challenges, it, it really behooves them to be aware of these causes because it really is one of those major, major red flags that should just make you stop in your tracks. So reading the medical record or interviewing the parent to find out about the history is one of the critical pieces in um, um, kind of solving the mystery of whether a child has CVI.
2: Now one of the things that I was very, very interested uh, in your presentation here in Los Angeles last month was about the fact that there were certain questions that you, you could basically ask parents, almost sort of a screening and, mm-hmm. and it really leads to the suspicion that this child may have cortical vision impairment. Can
1: mm-hmm. you
2: talk about some of those so that some of the staff that are working with children uh, may, may be able to also ask parents some of these questions or make these direct observations?
1: Yes. So <clears throat> this is actually um, this is the newest uh, research project that I've um, developed, and it's really, there is, um, it's, now in its preliminary data stage. So um, let me see if I can very quickly explain what I'm what I'm doing and what those, where those questions come from. Um, actually, actually, if I can just have the liberty of even stepping back one further, one step further. Almost all of my work is really based on um, information I have gathered directly from working with parents and with children. And so um, when my early work in noticing that there were patterns, noticing that not only were there characteristics that, like, Dr. Jan, Dr. James Jan had noticed, but I was beginning to see some additional characteristics as well. Those were really all um, part of some very um, long-term observations and information that I got from parents. I began to see there were patterns in what parents were telling me. So this Infant interview is also really based on, it's it's precisely based on the experience I have when um, when doctors or nurses ask me to come into the neonatal unit or come to a follow up a neonatal follow up appointment, and they and when they ask me you know to take a look at this child's vision because they're just concerned it's not typical, I always, I would ask the nurses tell me why you asked me to come here. You know, what was it that you noticed? And based on what I was told plus my own knowledge of CVI, I began to think there's very likely a method to really identify babies very, very early who are at risk for CVI. So just like there's a protocol to identify babies who are premature who may have retinal disorders, um, in fact it would be malpractice not to screen those children if they meet criteria, I'm hoping, very much hoping that I can develop um, a screening that will become a widely used screening for very young children who are 38 weeks gestation through six months of age to to get them identified early and put into sort of a protective category while we um, wait to do a full assessment called the CVI range. So those questions are very simple. And the questions I want to also share that the preliminary data are being collected now by our hospital. Um, I have I'm in agreements right now with um, Johns Hopkins Hospital, Cleveland Clinic, Markham Stofield Hospital in Toronto. There are a number of places New York City is a hospital in New York City that's interested. so we're trying right now to, to, to sort of pilot this and see if it's work it can work in other places. There are five items to the screening, just five items. And the five items, of course, i train people on how to do this, but the the two of them are interview questions, and I simply ask a parent, um, do you have concerns about the way your child sees? And a parent of a very, very young child who has no concerns, who feels confident that their child is developing typically visually, will simply say no. Parents of children with CVI respond differently. They often hesitate. Or they they will say, um, just I screened a child just Friday, and the parent said, well, I think because of everything he's been through, it's starting to improve. Well, that, to me, is a positive for CVI. That means that answer is a CVI-like answer. Parents are not saying, oh, no, I have no concern. The second question I ask is, does your child look at you with eye-to-eye contact? Because even newborns, even babies, for 38 weeks gestation and are still in intensive care, but about ready to go home, will look with direct eye-to-eye contact at, at humans, especially their parents, but not these babies, not babies with CVI. They, they are having a great deal of difficulty sort of landing visually on the face. Um, and so parents, again, will answer things like they'll say something like, um, you know, sometimes I think he might look toward me or... Um, It might be improving. Again, it's not that definitive answer. Yes, my child looks right at my face. Then there are three things that we do. So there's five items, two interview, and then three behavioral. The three behavioral are these. I um, um, use a, uh, tap the child on the bridge of the nose, and the child, even a baby, 38 weeks gestation, should blink simultaneously with the touch. Um, The second item is, I use a, a certain light. It's a red light that has safe light properties, so all the research centers will get the same light. And I pass this bright, light, bright red light across the child's line of vision. Babies, newborns, are photophobic. Bright light is very offensive to them. And so, you know, in the NICU, if, you know, if, if on the day that they come in to take the baby's pictures, you have to turn the lights down if you want the baby to open her right. eyes. So I would expect the babies to close their eyes to the presence of this bright light, but the children who go on to have CVI very often look straight into the light. They don't even hesitate to just stare right into this intense light. And the third thing that I do is either hold the baby about 18 inches from my face or ask the parent to hold the baby, and I'm looking now to see if I can observe eye-to-eye contact. Um, Any If there are two out of five of those, that come up as positive for CVI. The child is put into a protective category. Even if they've had their eyes examined, they will be re-referred to an eye doctor. And between six months, well, I'm sorry, between nine months and 12 months of age, there will be a follow-up assessment. A full CVI range will be done. And because the CVI range has reliability and validity, if the child has a positive CVI range profile, um, then, you know, they have CVI. So what I'm looking for is whether or not there is agreement between this early screening and the outcome of the CVI range, which is, a, a, an, you know, a test that actually has data behind it. So I'm very interested, and I will tell you that so far the data have been overwhelmingly correlated with the child actually having CVI.
2: And, Dr. Roman, you know, it, it's such an easy type of a screening. Those particular, five particular items are quite simple. But what type of a red flashlight are you using? Is that a mini mag light or is it a pen light? What, what are you using during that test?
1: Well, this is a, a type of LED light, but it has actually been developed by um, 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 the husband of a woman who was in a CVI mentor training program with me in New England. Her name is Ellen Mazel, M-A-Z-E-L, and her husband developed this um, light, and he has written down all the light properties so that um, any physicians that, you know, when we're going through the IRB process, that we know that the light is safe um, to expose the baby to this light. Um, And it's also not something we hold in front of the baby's eyes for a prolonged period of time, we literally just pass it across their eyes several times. So I don't know what other light, you know, um, know, Dr. Bill, I would ask you, you know, if other people had that question, what would you suggest? Because I'm using a light that has been um, thoroughly kind of, you know, um, tested for that. Now, I would assume that the lights available from APH are also probably safe to use.
2: Okay, great. Now, one of the things that you'd mention is that throughout the years, there's observations that you have made with children uh, of CVI, and I think that these 10 different characteristics are extremely important. And after really listening to you talk about those 10 characteristics at our center, we've been using this on every child with CVI, and it, it fits just like a perfect puzzle piece. And can you share with the audience what are these ten characteristics that you see to be quite common among children with CBI? Okay. So
1: I will just give a very, very mini description. Is that, a, is that acceptable? Yes.
2: That would be because, very fine.
1: Yeah, because, you know, again, each one of these little segments are practically a course unto themselves, you know. Yes. So, um So the children um, with CBI, um, so the ten characteristics are are the key. They are... Um, I always say no matter how varied children with CVI are, so some kids with CVI, you know, walk and talk. I, I assessed a little boy yesterday who is six years old, um, and he's reading on a third grade level, he, but he still has, quite a, he has some challenges. Um, I can I evaluated a child right after that little boy who had no head control and no expressive language. What you know? What ties those children together? Well, the thing that ties them together is that they share these characteristic behaviors. And so, you know, when people say kids with CVI are so confusing, I really take issue with that because I don't find them to be confusing. If if we kind of follow the framework and stick to the rules. They actually, um, the mystery is really solved quite quickly, and one of those big sets of rules are these characteristics. So, so we're, we want to know what they are, measure the effect, the extent of the effect of them, and then you know, design interventions at that level. So, the ten characteristics include, first of all, color preference. Um, many children with CVI have a, um, they have they they demonstrate more visual attention on objects that are a particular color. And, of course, red and yellow are the most common. But children with CVI can have a color preference for any color because it may have as much to do with the child's experience with something in their environment of that color as the color itself. But it's also important to recognize that even when a child doesn't have a preferred color, that color remains more important for children with CVI than other children because color is a kind of visual anchor. It's it's represented bilaterally in the brain. It is almost always intact. One of the big differences between children with CVI and children with ocular disorders is that color replaces the concept of contrast. So where somebody would work with a child with an eye disorder and want to present high contrast for children with CVI, we're going to replace that with Highly saturated color. That's what's going to draw the child's attention and hold their attention. The use of black and white materials is contraindicated for children with TBI. Another characteristic is movement. So children with TBI, just like all children, have you know two big visual streams. One is dorsal or peripheral visual um, attention. The other one is ventral stream, and that regulates detail or the you know what things are. So if we go to movement, um, it's, an, it's, it's um, the process that I have seen children with CVI follow is that they first be- begin to develop vision through their dorsal stream, which means movement. So children with CVI will notice moving things much more easily than they can notice things that are stable or just sit still. So many children with CVI will notice a ceiling fan. They will notice things that are shiny or reflective. They will notice things, uh, they might even like a mirror, even though they can't see their face, they like the shininess of it. It's not really appropriate to use, but they like the shininess. So movement is very important. And we will add movement to things to help a child with CVI notice it. Um, The next one is, um, another one is latency, visual latency. Children with CVI often have a delay response that you show them something and they don't look right away, um, they might even still at a moment, but then it, by the time, in order for them to turn and notice it, even if they're not fixating, but just localizing, just turning in the direction of the target, that there often is a delay, there's a processing time that is extended. So it seems like you count, you know, one 1,000, two 1,000, finally the child turns and looks that latency it is so important that we give the child additional wait time because if we don't the child will never be successful at finding the target and that must be so frustrating for children with tbi during that time when we're waiting for that processing to happen it's also important that adults or you know that the environment be quiet because very often children with tbi can't really pay attention when they're asked to look and listen at the same time. So, if you're coaching the child, like our tendency would be to say, Come on, Johnny, look, look, look. But really, during that latency time, just try to be silent because what they need is just more time. Um, another characteristic is visual or visual fields, visual field differences or preferences. So, many of the causes of CVI affect the optic radiation. The optic radiation help regulate visual fields, and those are almost always affected in children with CBI, this the visual field issues. So we do kind of a modified confrontation technique to see where the child seems to pick up the lighted moving target first. We also do tabletop activities or things on their wheelchair tray or get information by interview from the parent about, you know, where the child seems to see best or watch the parent. Because the parent will approach the child from the child's best visual field. If you do nothing else but watch where the parent seems to approach the child, you will notice that they tend to use they tend to tap into the place the child can see best. Um, lower visual fields are frequently affected in children with CVI, especially in children with white matter damage. They just don't seem to pick things up in their lower fields. So obviously, that has tremendous um, implications for where how you position materials. If the child's ambulatory, um, they might need a cane because they might not pick up a drop off and so forth. Another characteristic is um, difficulties with visual complexity, and visual complexity is really is the if, if movement is the where system, then complexity is the what system or ventral stream. When you wonder, why does my child or why does my student with CVI never seem to be looking directly at something? It may be because they haven't begun. So the characteristic of visual complexity has four distinct, four aspects, and we have to assess all four of those. We we watch, you know, how busy is the surface of an object? Um, If it's too complex, if it has too many colors and patterns, the child's learning the aspects, the features of that object will be very fragile. Single-color objects kind of lock into the brain as a better representation of an object at first. And as the child improves, more color, more pattern is okay. The second part of complexity is the background. So children with CDI kind of view the world as a kind of visual kaleidoscope. And it's just full of colors and patterns that make no sense to them. And so when we use a black background or we use a plain background or we wear a black shirt instead of a patterned shirt, what we're really doing is we're pulling one piece out of that kaleidoscope and isolating it so the child can have access to it. So that that really accounts for why a lot of children with CVI seem to have very little visual attention because much of their world looks like that kaleidoscope unless we... Put something between what we want the child to look at and the rest of the of the busyness behind them. Another part of CVI is the is the sensory environment, and I did mention this a little bit. That children with CVI often cannot use their vision when there is competition to their other senses. So if you know if your speech therapist is really you know talking and coaching the child, you may see very little visual attention. But if we if we do something more like this, if we offer the child, if we say, you know what, um, Amelia, I'm going to, in a minute, I'm going to show you your red shoe before we put it on you. I'm going to show you your red shoe. You know, it's red and has laces. So, in a, so here we go. Get ready. And then you show it to the child, and then you're quiet. The child looks. You're still quiet. When the child looks away, stops looking, then you can say, Yep, that was your red shoe. You saw that red shoe with laces. So we want to sort of stagger where that sound comes in. It's a child. Many children with CBI love music. But what we have to be careful of is that that it doesn't become their full-time form of access. You know, we want children with CBI to, have a, to use all of their senses to the greatest ability possible. And in order to use vision, um, we have to really watch what the child is doing and notice that if they look away when the music starts, then music can be the reward. But if it's on all the time, we're not going to get them to look. It's better if there's music that once the child hits the switch or hits the music object, that that vision got that for them. Does that make sense? So, And the last part of complexity is the child's inability to um, access the human face because it's a very complex pattern. So... All of those pieces improve as the child's functional vision improves. We'll move on to another characteristic. Another characteristic is um, light gazing. That children with CVI um, often will spend long periods of time staring at lights. And that is a way to very passively keep the visual system alive. So we don't really want to encourage kids to stare at lights, but rather we can pair Targets with light in order to use that as a motivator, as an encourager, as a facilitator to look at a target. So we can pair something with a light, we can add light to it, we can um, select things that have lighted elements, we can use tablet devices that have backlighting, we can select communication devices that have backlighting because that light is really going to draw the child in. Another characteristic um, is, I don't have anything in front of me here, so I'm hoping that I remember all 10, Um, and maybe somebody's been counting. Uh, Another characteristic is um, our reflex differences. So children with TBI have two reflexes that may be atypical. One is the touch of the bridge of the nose that I mentioned before. Um, So that could be present, absent, or latent, we want to. Might sort of take a look at how the child responds with that. And the second one is the visual threat. When you move your hand quickly toward the child's face, do they blink in anticipation of the target approaching them? Those are not part of an intervention program because you can't teach a reflex, but they're measured um, as part of the overall kind of assessment protocol. Another characteristic is difficulties with visual novelty. Um, children with CVI have a very unusual response to novel targets. So any any person who has typical vision um, is likely to is is pretty much driven to notice the most discrepant target present. So if everything, you know, it's that whole thing about if you came into your home at the end of the day and somebody perked a zebra at your dining room table, you would notice that zebra very quickly because it doesn't belong. It's novel. It's odd. It's unusual. It stands out. Your brain says, whoa, what is that? And so that that alerting response that novelty gives us also helps us learn new things because we pay attention to that and try to figure out, where that belongs in our visual schemes. Children with CVI see the world as, as mostly novel. Nothing makes sense to them visually. And so if so many targets don't make sense, what does make sense to them is the thing they have already learned and recognized, whether it be Elmo, whether it be that, you know, that shiny red heart that you put on their music player, whether it's their... You know, um, whatever that tar- whatever that set of targets are that they've already learned, their bright yellow cup. Those are the things that are going to be alerting, and so they tend to do the opposite, and they notice and respond visually to the familiar object. So we can help children with CVI learn new objects visually by selecting targets that share properties with the familiar ones. So if something's a single color, red moving, light-up object, we can have other things be red, single-color, moving, and light-up, and the child will likely learn those pretty quickly. Um, Another characteristic is um, distance viewing. Children with CVI frequently have difficulty, even when they have a normal eye exam, they have difficulty um, noticing targets beyond inches from their face, or a couple of feet from their face, or as their functional vision improves, further and further away. So as complexity improves, distance viewing improves. And the last characteristic is the visual motor characteristic, and that's one in which children with CBI often um, look away. They'll notice a target, they'll kind of look toward a target, then glance away, and then reach without looking. And that is. Um, That inability to use a visually directed reach and I'm talking about even when a child has terrible palsy, I'm talking about having vision, having the child, even if they have to turn their head or they're in an unusual posture, that's different. They might still hold that posture as they attempt to get their hand near the target. But the CVI characteristic is one in which the child literally looks away and then initiates the reaching behavior. And no. that's that's dependent upon the integration of both dorsal and ventral streams of vision. Okay, I'm sorry.
2: No, no. And I, I just want the audience to know, you know, as an eye doctor, when we would examine children with CVI in the past, we would measure their visual acuity, we would measure their peripheral vision, we'd measure their need for glasses, but there's so many different Aspects of vision that we really didn't take into consideration, and Dr. Roman has created a range of CBI range of of scores, of testing, where when a child does see either a person who has been trained in this particular model or a doctor who's trained in this model, the child with CBI can have a baseline evaluation where we can now measure each of these characteristics What is that level of vision? And we could then later test that level of vision at a later date, and we could then determine what type of progress has this child made. So there Mm -hmm. are two different rating scales that Dr. Roman has, and that is something that you could read about in her book. But in the interest of time, I don't uh, really want to go into that in detail, but Dr. Roman, uh, in your research, would you basically tell the audience what was really the result of your research in, in performing this kind of research among children with CVI? You did the baseline evaluation uh-huh. to measure their vision, and there was a score, and you were able to later test their vision at a later time. And can you tell us what kind of results? What percentage of the kids who received early visual intervention made improvements in their vision?
1: Um, Well, it actually had less to do with who got early intervention versus who got appropriate intervention. And so one of my big theories is that um, improvement in functional vision for children with CVI is not a developmental phenomenon. So when parents are given advice of just wait and see and We'll just, you know, yes, your child has CBI, No, there's nothing we can do. We'll just wait and see what happens. That, to me, is some of the worst advice that can be offered because um, what we found was that when we looked at um, children who come to pediatric view, and they come from all over the country and other countries as well, so we had a nice sample, you know, representative in a way, um, and we assessed them the first time. They were all different ages, all different ages. Some were babies, some were, you know, preschoolers all the way through high school. We found that um, no child on that first assessment, almost no child, scored above three, and the, the range goes up to ten. So zero is little or no functional vision, ten is near normal. We found that they scored pretty low, um, and when we compared that to a last TBI range, and that was an arbitrary time. Some children were um, there. We looked at their last score after they had come back one time. Some children had come back three or four times. What we found was that the improvement was dramatic, and that if we averaged out the amount of time and didn't just look at age, look at all these messy ages together, that for a child to get from a score of around you know, one-ish on the range, which I call phase one, the early phase, to phase three, which is the score between seven to ten, that it took about 3.7 years, and 98% of the children got there. And that, that data, those data have been published in the Journal of Visual Impairment and Blindness in October of 2010. And so the question is, so what happened? You know, if it was only age, you would expect that all children would improve, and the correlation would be closer a closer match to their age. She would expect the younger children to score lower, and as they got older, they would score higher and higher and higher, but that's not at all what we found. We found that once the parents got a plan and began to put the interventions in place, that that's when things began to change dramatically for their child's functional vision. So. If the child was 12 years old and no one ever really systematically approached these characteristics or the interventions across their day, they're likely to hover around three on the range, which isn't a whole lot of functional vision. But if you can get to that higher score of seven or above, you're able to actually, thats vision you can use to read, That's vision you can use to use a complex communication system, that's vision that allows you to see your environment at, you know, up to, you know, between 15, 18, 20 feet and some children beyond. That's a lot. It's a lot of functional vision. So so actually, Dr. Bill, we found that, that what was really alarming to me was that, of course, early intervention is critical. And that's why I want to find as many children as I can as early as I can. Um, because, you know, plasticity for vision is just magic in infancy. But it really was correlated with what we did. And so when a child is exposed to a visually confusing environment day after day after day, their vision doesn't improve very much. But when we can clarify and give them access to a more meaningful environment, to an environment that makes sense and is paired with routine of the day, a lot of change happens.
2: And that makes so much sense. And what I see that often happens with many of our patients, we often will see parents who will buy every possible toy, and often they're just using black and white toys and bombarding Mm -hmm. all of these new Mm -hmm. things, and the children don't look at it. And actually next month, uh, for all of you out there, we will be talking about how to utilize these strategies that Dr. Roman's developed for uh, early intervention. But we have about 15 minutes uh, left, and I'd like to have some time that our audience can ask you questions, if that's all right, Dr. Roman.
1: Wonderful. Yeah, it's wonderful.
2: So if you have a question, if you would just unmute your phone by pressing star six and go ahead and ask Dr. Roman. Uh, any question that you have regarding uh, cortical vision impairment or the CVI range? Hello.
0: Hi, this is Angela Shahadi.
2: Yes, hi, hi, hi.
0: Shahadi. Hi, I have a question. Um, if you are trying to find the color preference for a child, mm-hmm. do you use like a certain toy, or a, do you use a light, or how do you how do you do that?
1: Well, there are some sort of you know, systematic ways to go about it, and I will share with you what I do to sort of validate that. But the first and best way to do this is to simply ask the parent: Does your child have a preferred color? And if there is one, the parent will know it. I did a, um, another piece of research in 1996, in which I where I developed my parent interview, and that um, what I found with that was when I correlated what a parent reported about their child. And I correlated with what the child actually did, even though, you know, the parent was giving the interview information and somebody else had the child in another room and was, you know, testing these things out. The correlation between what a parent said and what the child did had a p-value of 0. .0001. Mm-hmm. So, I really feel as though <laughs> the most direct way to get at that color issue is to ask the parent. Then, if the parent says, um, a, a child they saw today, um, the dad is a very macho guy, and he has a very, very important job in Washington, D.C., and he's a very intimidating kind of presence. He's really a man's man, you know, and he, um, his child's color preference always has been bright pink. And they <laughs> said, does this, does this sort of kill you that it's pink? And he said," He said, no, no, whatever helps, but in my heart of hearts, I think he just cringes. But, but um, he, in fact, he's right. But then I would test that out. So when I would do field, if I did a concentration sort of field test and I had lights with color caps, I'm going to, you know, present that light coming from behind at his right or his left, and I'm going to try it with different colors to sort of verify for myself, is there, does the child respond more quickly? and more efficiently with that preferred color or not. Um, I'm going to test that out. I'm going to do other things. I'm going to offer the child other things throughout the session. But honestly, I have never found, I mean never found, that when a parent reports there's a preferred color that it's been any other color. Now, as the child improves, um, that anchor color will will morph away from a single color into the need for vibrant, highly saturated colors, fluorescent colors, but no longer that particular color. One of the mistakes I think a lot of people make about color is that they think that once the preferred color is no longer, you know, the main event, that color doesn't matter anymore, but it matters all the way through the end of the process. Even when I'm teaching reading to children with TBI, I will use color in a very specific way to help that child see the salient features of that sight word. I will use color to highlight the difference between, you know, a cat and a dog, the the whiskers and the pointed ears. Color is never really going to go away, but I, I can get away from that single preferred color fairly quickly, actually. Does that help? Oh, yes,
0: that helps. I I didn't know if you had a certain toy or a certain object that was in all different colors and you just tried every one or if you used a light or or how how you did it, but um, that makes sense. Thank
1: you. Yes, I do have have collections of things that only vary on color, but I find it really um, because I don't always know if the child's responding to the object, whether it's too novel, that I, um, you know, I can't have, like, You know, it's impossible to have every object that could potentially be the preferred object. So I do um, kind of verify that through my field testing and some other things, but the field testing usually helps a lot.
0: Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
1: Hi. Next question for Dr.
2: Roman.
0: Hi, Dr. Roman. My name is Kelly. I'm a parent. And my my child – thank you for being with us. Um, My child exhibits – some but
2: not all of your 10 characteristics, is Mm -hmm. that something to be still considered CVI and or is it something that it seems that it would still
1: benefit from your methods of intervention? Um, So I would say there, there are three diagnostic criteria. One is an eye exam that doesn't explain the way your child is using their vision functionally. The second is a history of one of those big, neurologic conditions and the mm-hmm. third is the pre- presence of the characteristics if you even think some of the characteristics are present I would actually pursue um, fi- find somebody who can do the CBI range to, mm-hmm. to, and do it with them just to double check to make sure that um, that you know which of the characteristics hum- are, are actually there it's been my experience that that children with CBI have profiles that in So it may be even an interpretation, you know, of, of what I'm trying to explain in a brief period of time. But I would pursue some, first and foremost somebody who would give you a level of those characteristics. I think that would be really important. It, it, you know, you'd be no worse off, and you can be really cautious to make sure, you know, how how extensive is this profile. Also, the um, the interventions are really not. A therapy. I, I want to emphasize that. So the interventions are a set of adaptations and some ways that we approach certain things um, that are used throughout the day. So it's the way we look at, um, you know, what kinds of, how are we going to set up my child's breakfast situation so that they will actually see the spoon before they, the spoon comes to their mouth. How am I going to adapt, you know, what am I going to do during bathing time that's going to, that's going to give a visual opportunity, what am I going to do during playtime, how am I going to adapt their PTOT routines, what about their speech and language materials, do I need to make sure those are adapted to, to really give my child access to this information. All of it really has to be based on the assessed level of CVI so that it's not above or below their assessed level. So it's not a therapy like exercises, it's nothing like that. It's really a way to adjust the environment and the materials and sometimes the approaches to meet the child's needs. So I hope that answered your question. I would say I would err on the side of a safety net and making sure that, you know, just having someone else look with you to see how many of those characteristics and the extent of them are present. And, right, thank uh, you.
2: And Kelly, but before you, you draw uh, hang up that phone there, Uh, Where do you live? So maybe we could find a a person who could do the CVI range for you. Um, I actually live and have recently seen you, Dr. Bill, with my eight-month-old, and I'm fortunate to have an appointment in June
0: with uh, Dr. Roman Lancey.
2: Okay, great. Oh,
0: fun. Okay. (laughs) Great. Thank you. Thank you.
2: All right. Uh, Next question.
1: Hello, morning, Marjorie.
2: Hi, Margarita. Can you speak a little bit uh, closer to your phone, please?
1: My child is four years old. That so she just got diagnosed in January, and I need some help. of What is it that I need to start helping her with? I've always noticed that something was wrong, and mm-hmm. I got DARS because I'm in Texas to help me. Find,
0: I know, I know, I need help with her. How how close does she see the TV or, or the lighting or anything? So she got me with Dr. Fleming, and she was able to tell me she's got CVI. Mm-hmm. So now it's like, where do you start? And I, I saw it on the Internet, Facebook, something about Phase 1,
1: but I don't understand. Um, is there a book or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where do I go from yes. here? Yes. So, so um, there, you know, I, I mean, there are several books. There's a book that parents wrote about their experiences with their child with CVI that I think would be very helpful to you. It's called Little Bear Seas, Little Bear Seas, and it, it's um, it's very helpful. I think you would find that very helpful. And then um, I wrote a book as well. Um, you can just Google my last name and you would see that. But I think it, if you're in Texas, if you contact uh-huh. the out, the outreach department at the School for the Blind, they will have uh-huh. somebody to. can who can do the CVI range for you as well? Oh, okay.
2: Okay, that's and the outreach center at the Texas School for the Blind,
1: the outreach department, or or your own school district. There should be a vis- teacher of the visually impaired who can who can address that need. But but ask specifically for someone to do the CVI range so that we you have a good starting point. Okay.
2: Great. Thank you. That's great thank information. You. Yeah. Okay, we have time for one more question for Dr. Roman. One more question. Yes, go ahead. Hi, uh, I'm the parent of a, a six-year-old with uh, CVI. Um, would it potentially be beneficial for uh, for reading purposes to use letters other than black?
1: This is a whole <laughs> hour's conversation, but um, there are many, so if... if um, If your child is is, you know doing literacy stuff and is ready for reading and there there are some bunch of prerequisites that I look at for a child with C V I in order to help them be successful. But let's just say those are in place. I use a sight word approach. So phonemic awareness is important. Letter sound association, B says b and t says t. But I don't I haven't found it to be very helpful. For children with CVI to actually learn to sound words out because they read too slowly. They get stuck in the complexity of the word. So I outline the shape of the sight word very tightly with color, so tightly that it's like a puzzle piece. And you can take the letters that would be black, you know, black on white background, but the outlining is going to be a color, a fluorescent color. And that outlining draws the child's attention the salient features of that sight word, and I would suggest you actually talk about. This is a short word, that bed, B-E-D, starts with the sound B, ends with the sound D, and see how this has a tall letter at the beginning and a tall letter. It's a little short word, B-E-D, but and then I would take the letters out as a whole unit, take it out, have them fit it back in as a puzzle piece. There are many, many things that go with this to help a child become literate. Um, if, you, if you want more information about that, I, I, can, I can be happy to talk to you about that or to even connect you with parents who have actually successfully gone through that process and their, their children are, you know, either using a series of sight words or actually reading fluently that. That's a, but I, um, I wouldn't make the letters themselves color. I would make the shape of the sight word stick out.
2: The whole shape so of the sight word.
1: So Tightly not just outlining it, not just drawing like an oval around it or a box around it. It has to be so tight that the child begins, that they look at the shape of the word and they get, you know, they they recognize it because it is a a single unit that has some visual aspects they can recognize. I start with a very short word and a very long word. So like the word bed and the word schedule and I tell you know, this is spelled this way, this is spelled that way, this is a very long word, this is, you know, this word schedule has a tall letter at the end, um, you know, and and so forth. So that, and, and actually if you even go to Wikipedia and you and you look up describing letter shapes, there's some very cool ways that you can actually um, help a child begin to think about what something looks like in terms of, you know, the end of the word ends in a Y and that's da 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 da, da. Um, I will also suggest to you that the Bridge School in, um, I don't know if you know the Bridge School that is near um, San Francisco, are you in California? Yes, I am. So they have, um, I worked very closely with the Bridge School, and they have, um, if you would look on their website, I don't know if they have it up yet or not, they have um, they have a whole CVI, they, they do intensive work around CVI, including literacy. If you want they, they may be a nice resource for you in terms of examples of how they've done this. They're doing a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful job with it.
2: Great. Thank you. Great. Well, Thank you very much, Dr. Roma. This is really very, very wonderful information. And your book is available through the American Printing House, uh, if no, anyone No, no it's not? American
1: Foundation for the Blind. Oh, the Blind.
2: Okay. Okay. <laughs> so the book is titled Cortical Vision Impairment. And it's available yep. through the American Federation of the Blind, AFB.org? Nope.
1: The American <laughs> Foundation. Okay. The, the American you? Foundation for the Blind, AFB.org. And that's the American Foundation for the Blind. The book is called Cortical Visual Impairment An Approach to Assessment and Intervention.
2: Great. Thank you very much. And You're if welcome. anybody wants to get in touch with you, is there an email that they may contact your office Absolutely. or your program?
1: Absolutely. So if they want to email me, they're welcome to. And it is um I'll say it and then I'll spell it. It's C Roman, like my first initial last name, C R O M A N at C V I Resources, C V I R E S O U R C E S dot com.
2: Great. And, and well, they can go again. through this.
1: We can't tell you
2: how much we appreciate this. And uh, for all of you, this is our largest group in attendance. We appreciate all of you coming on. And next month we're going to be talking about visual intervention uh, for those with CVI. So, Sue, I want to Mm -hmm. thank you. And any last messages?
0: No, I don't. I just want to thank you, Dr. Roman and Dr. Bill, for giving us this wonderful, wonderful um, lecture and discussion. And I know we all learned a lot, so it's great. Thank you.
1: Yes. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Thank okay. you. And,
2: yes, I want to also thank uh, Mr. Dick Burden from Airs yeah. LA for recording this. This will be up at the Braille Institute website at www.brailleinstitute.org and also on Airs LA at www.airsla.org. So again, Dr. Roman, thank you very, very much. I hope you have a, a wonderful night of sleep this evening. All right, and, uh, thank you. We hope to see all of you again next month when we talk about visual intervention. Okay, thank you, everybody.